By that 1st November, when the Red Army was holding before Moscow and planning its counteroffensive, Russian winter equipment was being fed up into the lines. Up went the felt boots to replace leather boots. Up went the heavy gloves, the fur and the sheepskin hats, the heavy sheepskin or wool overcoats, the stoves to keep the men warm in the dugouts. Now the guns moving to the front went with barrels painted white, as camouflage against the snow. The tanks and trucks were painted white. White strips of cloth covered artillery positions. At the aerodromes, the planes were fitted with skis, and adjustments were made to all kinds of motorized equipment, so that the terrible frosts would not clog the lubrication of engines and jam the working parts of cannon and machine guns. Labor battalions were brought up to keep the runways and highways free of snow, and they worked night and day, in temperatures that in January dropped to more than 40 degrees below zero. As they shoveled and worked, these men, most of whom were more than 40 years old, covered their noses and mouths with strips of cloth so that the moisture from their breathing would not congeal on their faces. Now all warfare was different. The Germans were using a lot of motorized artillery. They could not move that far out into the fields, away from the roads, unless they built runways over which the trucks could move. But the Russians were relying mostly on horse artillery, and their light 45mm or 1.8-inch guns could be moved by hand if necessary, nine men to a gun. The Germans, too, had large numbers of tanks, but they learned after the snows fell that a light tank cannot move in more than 12 inches of snow, and a medium tank is stopped by 18 inches. The result was that, towards the end of December, the Germans began sending their tank divisions back to Germany for reorganization and reformation. Their soldiers in the field began to suffer intensely from the cold. Their light overcoats were little more than topcoats, under which they wore a sweater if they were lucky enough to have received one from home. Their gloves were inadequate. They had no heavy hats, only their overseas caps, which they buttoned down under their chins. But they were not warm enough, and the men began stealing everything they could take from Russian civilians. Women's dresses, scarves, jackets, anything they could wrap or tie on that might provide some little protection against the cold. I remember one day seeing a German tank officer beside his crippled machine. He lay dead on the ground. On his legs was a suit of bright blue skiing pants he had stolen from some Russian woman a style peculiar to the country. Welcome to Beyond Barbarossa, the first English-language podcast in the world that focuses on the Eastern Front of World War II. I'm Scott Burry. This is episode 22, part two of the examination of the Soviet Union's winter offensive of 1941 to 1942. The opening story was from a book called The Russian Army, Its Men, Its Leaders, Its Battles by American war correspondent 
Walter Kirk, published in New York in 1944. Walter Kerr was a war correspondent who spent a fair bit of time embedded in units in the Red Army in 1941 and 1942. Last episode, we looked at the beginning of that winter offensive, which it's called the 1942 offensive, but it actually started in December 1941. But, you know, yeah, the Soviets were kind of mixed up with dates. They, they called the October Revolution that happened in November of 1917. But anyway, so last episode we looked at uh, operations in Tikhvin, which uh, in which the Soviet armies retook that city east of Leningrad and brought some relief to besiege Leningrad, allowing more supplies to come in. Not enough to solve the situation, not enough to end the starvation that was going on there, but it was a little bit better for the people there. Last episode, we also looked at the Demyansk pocket, the part of the Demyansk offensive operation. Another costly failure for the Soviets because while they advanced on the Germans, the Germans in this area were dug in on a defensive posture for the winter, well protected. And even when they were encircled, they were able to bring in supplies by air. So this episode, we're going to take a look at the other operations that made up that great winter counteroffensive that began in January 1942, following the end of the Battle of Moscow. Soviet success in driving the Germans back from Moscow in December 1941, Stalin was apparently feeling pretty confident. He summoned his top generals to a Stavka meeting, that's the Supreme Military Command of the USSR, at the Kremlin on the 5th of January 1942. According to historian David Stahl, writing in Retreat from Moscow, a New History of Germany's Winter Campaign, 1941-1942. to Stalin himself was full of good cheer. He was convinced the war had turned irrevocably against the Germans, and that if 1941 had been the year of defeats, 1942 would be the year of complete victory. End quote. Stalin himself is quoted as saying, The Germans seem bewildered by their setback at Moscow and are poorly prepared for winter. Now is the time to go over to a general offensive. So, a few days later, on January 10, 1942, he wrote in a directive to all front and army commanders Our task is to deny the Germans this breathing space, to drive them to the west without a halt to force them to expand their reserves before spring, when we will have new and large reserves, and the Germans will have no large reserves, and to thus secure complete defeat of the Hitlerite forces in the year 1942. End quote. 
Keep that in mind. Stalin foresees an end to this war in 1942. So, Stalin ordered a huge counteroffensive all along the Eastern Front, from one end to the other, all 1,800 kilometers of it. Grigory Zhukov, chief of the Soviet general staff, that is, Stalin's top marshal, was aghast, as were the other generals. For example, Konstantin Rokossovsky, commander of the 16th Army, which had been one of the more successful forces in driving the Germans back from Moscow in December, recalled the costs of that success. Quote, It was hard going for us too. The 16th Army had suffered great casualties in the course of the protracted defensive fighting and subsequent counteroffensive. The divisions numbered no more than 1,200 to 1,500 men each, artillery and mortarmen, engineers, signalers, and staff included. The number of infantry effectives was small indeed, and our command and political personnel had also suffered serious losses in the fighting. The situation in the neighboring armies was no better. End quote. According to Antony Bivor in his book, The Second World War, quote, Zhukov, who had not been told of Stalin's instructions to the Stavka, was horrified. In a conference with Stalin, he argued that the offensive should be concentrated on the Western Axis, near Moscow. The Red Army lacked sufficient reserves and supplies, especially of ammunition for a general advance. After the battle for Moscow, the armies involved had suffered heavy losses and were exhausted. Stalin listened, but ignored all Zhukov's warnings. Carry out your orders, he said. The meeting was over. Only later did Zhukov discover that he had been wasting his breath. Behind his back, detailed instructions had already been issued to front commanders. End quote. You see, the previous December, so that's 1941, just a few weeks earlier, Zhukov had proposed to Stalin that they could push the Germans back another 130 to 160 kilometers, or 80 to 100 miles, from Moscow, in the, sec the central sector of the Eastern Front. Now, doing this would require the addition of several new armies in this area. Stalin agreed with the objectives, but did not supply the necessary resources. But as we all know, in 1942, there was no such thing as saying no to Joseph Stalin. So the Red Army launched almost simultaneous assaults aimed at driving the Germans all the way back to Berlin by the end of the year. Now, there was some justification for Stalin's optimism, his ambition. German troops were suffering in the coldest winter of the century. Most did not have proper winter clothing. Their tanks and airplanes would not even start in the cold. Oil froze in oil pans, and they had trouble bringing enough ammunition and especially fuel to the front lines. But the Germans proved resilient and innovative in defense. Also, the winter was no kinder to the Russians than it was to the Germans. Both sides suffered from frostbite and shortages. 
For example, a Red Army officer named Leonid Rabichev is quoted in Anthony Beaver's The Second World War. He said, recalling uh, a period where he was traveling by horse cart near Kursk, quote, I saw a horrifying sight. An enormous space stretching to the horizon was filled with our tanks and German tanks. In between them, were, there were thousands of sitting, standing, or crawling Russians and Germans frozen solid. Some of them were leaning against each other, others hugging each other, some propping themselves with a rifle, others holding a submachine gun. Many of them had their legs chopped off. This had been done by our infantry, who had been unable to pull off the boots from the Fritz's frozen legs, so they chopped them off in order to be able to warm them up in the bunkers. It was terrible to think of the wounded, both ours and Germans, freezing to death. The front had advanced, and they had forgotten to bury these men. End quote. One of the most horrifying recountings of an experience on the entire Eastern Front. So you see, the savage winter of 1941-42 was hard on the Soviets as well as on the Germans. The main difference was the Soviets were much closer to home. On 7th January 1942, individual offensive operations, so-called, began from the Leningrad sector down to Crimea, and they all failed at huge cost to the USSR. So this episode, we're going to dig a little deeper into those operations in the center and the southern sectors of the Eastern Front. Now, before we get into too much detail about the Eastern Front in the winter of 1942, we need to take that uh, larger look at the rest of the war at the same time. Beginning in January 1942 was the... Um, it was called the second happy time by the Germans of the Kriegsmarine, the German Navy. Uh, it was the second happy time because now that the Americans had declared war on Germany, the U-boats were able to attack American shipping at will, and they did so with gusto all along the U.S. Atlantic seaboard and in the Gulf of Mexico. At this point, Japan occupied the Solomon Islands in the um, western, southwestern Pacific. On the 30th of January, 1942, speaking in the Berlin Sportsplatz, which is a, uh, a sports arena, Hitler swore to annihilate all the Jews in the world. On February 1st, 1942, Vikram Quisling became the minister president of Norway, following the German occupation in 1940, as well as the flight of the Norwegian royal family and its navy. Yes, Vikram Quisling, the collaborationist, whose name now means collaborator with evil. On the 3rd of February, Japan bombed Port Moresby in New Guinea, threatening Australia. And on the 15th, Singapore surrendered to the Empire of Japan. So it seems that uh, beginning of 1942, the Axis was ascendant around the world. This is also the time in North Africa where Rommel, the desert fox, is sweeping across Libya into Egypt 
threatening the Suez Canal. So now, let's zoom back in on Russia. You see, at this point, January 1942, almost all the action of the Eastern Front is in Russia proper. You can see this in Map 1, the overall view of the Winter Offensive. The only action outside of Russia is south of Kharkiv, which, as we all know now, is in Ukraine. So the first of these operations was uh, in the earliest days of January 1942, 25 to 30 Red Army tanks led an offensive against the German 2nd Panzer Army south of Kursk, which, as I said, in the southwestern part of Russia. This prompted a limited withdrawal by the Germans. 2nd Army Commander Rudolf Schmidt brought in reinforcements from other sectors, and one action against this counteroffensive resulted in 500 Red Army casualties and 39 for the Germans. In this operation, the Germans also captured 13 anti-tank guns, including three German guns that had been previously captured by the Red Army. They captured, uh, the Germans, that is, captured 12 mortars, 21 machine guns, 16 trucks, lots of radios and telephones, German models being prominent among all this equipment. Now, even though they did suffer some losses and frostbite was taking a terrible toll on the Germans, they mocked the Soviet attacks. One officer wrote in his own diary, quote, the Russians advanced in such a silly way that the whole thing looked more like a demonstration than an attack. They would stop on the incline, apparently to rest, and made a wonderful target for our artillery, end quote. Another German wrote of, quote, wave after wave of Soviet attacks mowed down, end quote, which only resulted in another wave in exactly the same way. The Germans were astonished at how little the Soviets seemed to value the lives of their own men. In contrast, the German forces showed great adaptability to shifting circumstances. Without needing authorization from senior officers, they could withdraw when attacks required, then counterattack and successfully retake their former positions. And this is exactly what happened over and over again. The effects of this difference in tactics, or maybe in the sort of the view of the war, are clear. German deaths in this stage of the war in the East were less than one-tenth the Soviet losses. By January 8, the Red Army shifted farther north to exploit a gap it had managed to break between the 2nd and 4th armies of the Germans. The Red Army had recaptured the town of Kaluga, north of Orel, by the end of 1941, so they pushed farther into this gap. The 4th Army brought in more panzers and motorized forces from other divisions, as well as new arrivals from France because France was quelled by this point. On January 4th, the Red Army surrounded 4,000 German troops in a call, town called Suchinichi, 90 kilometers west of Kaluga. There was no hope of this German division being rescued. There just weren't any forces available anywhere near that were not already engaged 
or that were strong enough to break through the Soviet lines. So rather than try to withdraw, though, Hitler ordered the unit there fight to the last man. Hitler, by this point, was trying to micromanage the whole Eastern Front, even down to ordering more machine guns to Maloyaroslavets. As you can imagine, this resulted in a lot of frustration among the generals and officers. For example, Gunther von Klug, the commander of Army Group Center, wanted to allow the 4th Army to withdraw from this uh, Soviet onslaught. Hitler forbade it. Finally, the 4th Army's commander, Ludwig Kubler, withdrew the left or northern wing of this army, so that's on the north if you take a look at the maps. Um, he did this on his own authority, without asking permission. Despite the pressure, though, all along the front, the Germans managed to hang on, and we'll, we're going to take a look at that. You see, the most tempting target for the Soviets' counterattack was a little farther north than where the 4th Army was. You can see it in Map 2, which is an enlargement of part of Map 1. I'm talking about that big German salient sticking up north from Vyazma to Rzhev. Not only did this offer the Soviets an obvious target, from the Germans' point of view, it presented a threat on Moscow. So, two Soviet fronts, those were groups of armies, went after this target at the beginning of January 1942. These two fronts comprised 15 whole armies. Well, as whole as Red Armies were in 1942 because the millions of reinforcements coming from Siberia and the Far East had not all arrived yet. So if you remember Rokossovsky's comment about each division being down to 1,500 men, it was a pretty um, thin affair. Not to mention that this particular sector of the German Army Group Center's position was very well fortified and defended because Hitler had, uh, a month or so earlier, allowed the forces in the East to go to adopt a, uh, a defensive posture. So they dug in and they dug in well. This sector, or the town of Rzhev actually at the sort of center of this, was a, a major uh, transfer point for supplies for Army Group Center and a major air base for the Luftwaffe, the German Air Force. Now, Field Marshal Klug had authorized a withdrawal of the 9th Army at the northernmost extent of the salient on January 1st, despite Hitler's wishes that they hang on and not retreat a single step. On January 2nd, then, the Red Army broke through near the Maloyaroslavets and northwest of Rzhev. By January 7th, they had widened the gap between two German Army corps to 13 kilometers, or 8 miles. Things were looking bad for the Germans for about a week. Then the 1st Panzer Division started its own counterattack, destroying a Soviet position. This became a pattern in the salient, indeed along the whole front in the winter of 1942. Again, to quote David Stahl, the mantra seemed to be, for the Germans that is, defend, 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 strike a blow, defend, defend, defend. The Germans' attacks were typically infrequent enough to 
to achieve complete surprise, end quote. So that's the kind of fighting, the patterns that are emerging in early 1942 as the Germans have gone over to that uh, defensive posture and the Soviets are attempting counterattacks. And we're going to go on with that to look a little bit deeper into some of the other operations. But first, I need to take a short break for these messages. This episode is brought to you by the Eastern Front Trilogy, the true story of a Canadian man, Maurice Burry, drafted into the Soviet Red Army in 1941. Just in time to be thrown between the jaws of the USSR and Nazi Germany at the launch of the greatest land invasion in history, the monstrous war called Operation Barbarossa. In three volumes, Army of Worn Souls, Under the Nazi Heel, and Walking Out of War, the Eastern Front Trilogy is the story of the largest and deadliest side of the Second World War, seen through the eyes of a man who was there. There, from the earliest days in 1941, through Germany's grinding occupation of Ukraine, and finally to the savage end of the war in Berlin, and beyond. You can find the three individual volumes as ebooks exclusively on Amazon, or purchase the three volume complete paperback on any online book retailer or at your local bookstore. That's the Eastern Front Trilogy, comprising Army of Worn Souls, Under the Nazi Heel, and Walking Out of War. To learn more about these books, please visit the author's website, scottburyauthor.com. Thanks for coming back. So here we are looking at the Winter Offensive 1942. So, where were we? Well, we're at January 11th, 1942. On that day, Stalin had had enough of the failures of the Red Army in carrying out his orders to drive the Germans back to Berlin. So he issued another directive to the Kalinin Front, which is north of Moscow. He said, seize control of Rzhev on January 11th. So that's the same day that he's issuing this, uh, this uh, directive. Or in no case later than January 12th, using all available artillery, mortar, and aviation in the area to hammer the city of Rzhev, not stopping short of serious destruction of the city. End quote. Note there, that Stalin was calling for the destruction of a Russian city. Anyway, it didn't work. The Germans repelled repeated frontal assaults, mostly by infantry. So again, the Soviets, as we've seen before, and we're seeing up to 2023, sent in men with rifles in charging straight forward into enemy fire. So of course it didn't work. Soviet losses mounted. On January 13th, so this is the day after his deadline, the Red Army suffered over 300 dead, and that's just in front of Rzhev on one day. 300 men dead, compared to 41 German casualties. That's dead, wounded, prisoner, missing. Two days later, on the 16th, 400 Soviet soldiers died in front of Rzhev to negligible German casualties. So finally, on the 15th of January, 
Hitler allowed a withdrawal of part of that Rejev salient, about 18 kilometers southeast. So if you take a look at the map, uh, map two, you'll see that uh, left-hand shoulder of the salient on the northwest. They pulled back a little bit closer, and this allowed the Germans to form a shorter, stronger defensive line. Now, let's take a look at the next offensive in our list. That's the Toropetz-Kolm offensive to the north near Leningrad. We talked about this a, a little bit last episode, um, talking about the Demyansk pocket operation, which was another Soviet failure with high casualties. So in early 1942, the Soviet Northwestern Front was given two objectives. One was to drive west to Stareo Rusa, south of Lake Ilmen, to support the Volkov Front in its attempt to break the siege of Leningrad. The second objective was to thrust southwest toward the city of Vitebsk. You can see all this in map three. As you can see on the map, on one level, this was effective. The Red Armies moved a long way from the banks of the upper Volga to the city of Vitebsk. Along the way, they overran a major German supply depot at Torpets, which isn't on that map, but is roughly directly south. So if you draw, draw a line uh, south from Novgorod, and then another line west from Rzhev, where the intersect is roughly where Torpets is. On January 14, the Red Army surrounded and completely destroyed the German 81st Infantry Division, which had only been moved recently into the front from the reserves. How did the Soviets manage this, this success, amid all these other failures? Well, the Germans had been so concerned about the 4th Army and its positions farther south, that is, west of Moscow, that they had shifted forces from the northern sector of Army Group Center. So they had kind of stripped away a lot of the assets they had in that Total Pets area. Meanwhile, Army Group North was busy encircling and starving Leningrad. So in that sector opposite the Soviet Northwest Front, the defensive strongpoints were stretched so far they couldn't cover each other. In many cases, the Red Army could walk between them unopposed. A very important contributing factor to this apparent success in that one sector was the fact that the Germans had just withdrawn from that salient, those 18 kilometers eastward around Rzhev on January 15, in that area that's immediately adjacent to the offensive toward Toropets and Vitebsk. By 6th February, the Red Army had stretched as far as it could this offensive toward Vitebsk had pushed the Germans back significantly and helped create the Dmitsk and Kolm pockets. But they hadn't encircled Army Group Center as Stalin had wanted. They hadn't reached Smolensk. The Rzhev salient was still intact. German losses reached 12,000, a huge number. But Soviet losses were two and a half times that nearly 30,000 men killed, missing, or wounded. Mm -hmm.
So now let's uh, look to the farthest south of these Soviet winter offensive operations. The only Red Army initiative in this period that is outside of Russian borders in Ukraine, the so-called Botvankovo-Losovaya Offensive, which you can see at the bottom right of Map 3. The southwestern front and the southern front, at this point under Semyon Tymoshenko, and comprising seven armies plus two additional cavalry corps. Facing them were three armies of Army Group South, including the 6th Army, command of which Friedrich Paulus had recently been given. Also, the 17th Army of Hermann Hoth and the 1st Panzer Army of Uwald van Kleist. The Red Army's objective was to break through the German lines, swing behind them in the Donbass area, and push them back to the Sea of Azov, and then destroy them. It was another failure. The Red Army broke through, as you can see, and this resulted in a significant Soviet salient west of the city of Izium, scene of brutal fighting and even more brutal war crimes in 2022. But in 1942, they did not manage to encircle the Germans nor exploit their breakthroughs on the flanks. So this initiative stalled well short of its goals, more than 100 kilometers from the shores of the Sea of Azov, with the loss of 25,000 casualties. And that salient? That became a target for the Germans. By May 1942, the Germans would cut it off, meaning another 300,000 Red Army men killed, missing, or captured. So let's sum up. From January to March 1942, the Red Army obeyed Stalin's ambitious, nay, unrealistic orders and attacked virtually all along that 1,800-kilometer front, from Leningrad to Rostov. They had some successes, as you can see in Map 1. But while these were successes locally, they did not change the overall picture of the front in 1942. And they led to immense losses of Soviet soldiers, officers, and airmen, and women too and of civilians caught in the crossfire, with a fraction of the losses on the German side. Not insignificant, no, but hardly even. What the winter counteroffensive did show was the weaknesses in both sides. For the Soviets, their lack of armor and weapons, and their resulting dependence on infantry. The lack of training and experience, which led to those blockheaded full frontal attacks, depending on sheer numbers to overwhelm the enemy. Suicidal in the face of well-armed, well-trained, professional, experienced German forces. Another problem, the inflexible top-down culture of the Red Army, which should not allow for local commanders to use their own initiative to respond to local conditions and circumstances. On the German side, the winter showed the lack of preparedness as the most shocking revelation 
of weakness. And this was only exacerbated by the disconnect between the high command or OKH and the commanders at the front. Or maybe it was actually the disconnect between Hitler and reality. Overstretched supply lines were another clear problem for the Germans in the winter of 1942. And the complexity of their vaunted mechanized armies as well. The sheer number of different kinds of vehicles and weapons, all with their own parts and supply needs. Really, the only thing that prevented their complete collapse was the incompetence of the Red Army. According to David Stahl, again, quote, even through the worst period of the Soviet winter offensive, the German army never stopped being a potentially deadly adversary on the offensive, which contributed not only to the wide disparity in losses, but also to the Germans' feeling of superiority, even in the midst of Army Group Center's withdrawal. End quote. So there we are, the front in March 1942. Frozen. The losses mounting. This could be seen as the high watermark for Nazi Germany, with conquests in the East, West, North, and in Africa. On the high seas, the U-boat wolf packs are sinking Allied shipping at will, much of it destined for the USSR. And while the Eastern Front may have settled down or frozen, the commanders at OKH, the German High Command, are not idle. No, they're busy planning operations for the coming spring, once the snow melts and the mud dries. Something called Fall Blau, Case Blue, and the biggest battles of not just the Second World War, but of all time. But before we get to that, we have some other things to talk about. I have a very special guest to discuss the Eastern Front with me. None other than Dr. David Stahl himself, Professor of European History at the University of New South Wales at Canberra, Australia. The author of many books I've been depending on for this podcast. He has many deep and innovative analyses of the Eastern Front of World War II, and he will share them with us next episode. So don't miss it. Enter Monday, April 3rd, in your online calendar right now. And please, come back with me, Beyond Barbarossa, in two weeks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Beyond Barbarossa, the podcast about the Eastern Front of the Second World War. For a better understanding of the progress of the war, please take a look at those maps and the photos on the website, beyondbarbarossa.ca or beyondbarbarossa.podbean.com. You can also listen to the episode on my own website, writtenword.ca. Just click on the podcast button in the banner. Thanks to all who have supported the podcast through Patreon. Until all Ukrainian refugees can return home safely, your financial support goes to charities that help Ukrainian refugees. If you like this episode, consider following Beyond Barbarossa on your preferred podcasting app. And I'd really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, or wherever you listen. That really helps spread the word to others interested in history. If you find I've made any errors, please let me know. You can reach me by email at contact at beyondbarbarossa.ca 
And by the way, if you have tried to email me at that address before and gotten a bounce back or no response, I apologize. There was a little glitch that I didn't uh, realize was going on with that address. I fixed it and I will receive or I am receiving um, emails at that uh, address now. So contact at beyondbarbarossa.ca. You can also reach me by uh, Facebook at the Beyond Barbarossa page. Original music was composed and recorded by Nicholas Burry. I'm Scott Burry. Until next episode, keep your paddles in the water. Slava Ukraine.